0: We open-sourced like, way too soon. It was pretty raw, and you know, a lot of people were like, wait, this, this is just like undocumented bowl of spaghetti. It's not even a real open-source project. But so we continued to develop out in the open, and over time, we got more and more traction, and Feast became something that's a little bit more well-known.
1: This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open-source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm joined today by Willem Pinar, who is the creator, or at least one of the creators of Feast. Feast is an open source feature store. And super excited to have Willem on the show. He's been kind of the cutting edge of what's a important and emerging category here around feature stores. Willem, maybe you could tell us exactly what Feast is to start out.
0: Sure. So Feast is a feature store for machine learning. It's an open source tool that we built at Gojek when I worked there. So essentially it's a data system for operational machine learning. It acts as a bridge between models and data. In a production setting. So essentially, data scientists can use the system to ship features into production without the need for engineers to be involved. And they can quickly iterate on features and get those into production and use them in models and manage the lifecycle of those features. In much in the same way as data scientists today can train models and ship those into production through ML platforms. They also need a way to ship data into production. Where traditionally, that was a little bit harder. You know, you need to get an engineer to write a streaming pipeline for you, or you, they would need to, you know, go make some changes in like a product backend to compute features in the production environment where the purview of the data scientists was mostly the offline world or the batch world. So now you enable data scientists to be more self-serve. And that's pretty much what the feature store is all about.
1: Got it. And I don't want to go too far into this without going into the history, but when you say putting features into production, I think we talk about features in training but you're talking about also when features need to be served to the model for inference.
0: Right. Okay. I'm blurring those lines a little bit, but that's a key part of the value that Feature Store provides. If your use case is you're training a model and you're serving a model, the model expects the same feature values in both environments. And so Feature Stores provide that consistent interface, both offline and online. So if you don't have that online environment, that production environment, it's a little bit easier, right? Because you can write a single SQL query, you get your data from, let's say, BigQuery or some Snowflake or some you know data warehouse. You can both train and score in batch, pretty easy. But if you have divergent environments, then it's a lot harder, right? Because the data scientists can do the training, but shipping that model into production, it also requires equivalent data in a production setting. But that data comes from different places. It doesn't come from a data warehouse necessarily. It'll come from your product backends or streams or other backend services because it needs to be real-time and all those things. And so a feature store provides not just a way for data scientists to ship features into production, but also provides a unified interface between those two environments. So the model only sees one view of data. And it's kind of a unique problem to to ML, or at least decision systems that need to be trained like models.
1: I'm a bit familiar. When I was at Google Cloud working on data processing services, there was this awareness that to do machine learning, we needed not only to present the same features in training and production, but we probably should do the whole transformation pipeline the same, to ensure, like you said, consistency in how those features are calculated. Now that we kind of understand what Feast is, tell us kind of your story or the, or the story of Feast, which is maybe one and the same, and how you came to um, kind of discover the need here and, and then start working on it.
0: Yes, yeah, so I'm South African. I'm actually from engineering traditionally, so I studied mechanic engineering, and I worked for a while in control systems and automation. Actually, yeah, I ran a startup, like a networking startup an ISP for a while prior to that, but Professionally, I worked as a software engineer in industrial control systems and automation for about five years, and I started that in South Africa. At some point, I moved abroad, and I worked in Thailand and continue to work in that space. But I've always enjoyed the act of automating processes. And so if it's conveyor belts or factories or ERP systems, you know, like multinational corporations, all their control systems and their processes or whether it's a startup's internal infrastructure, that automation has always been like a fun area for me to explore. And so I moved more and more into data systems and machine learning over time and landed a role in Gojek in early 2017. And what is interesting about this company is that they were really like a rocket ship. A lot of companies call themselves that today, but (laughs) at that point we had, I think, three or four data scientists and They were trying to build a data team a data science team and from the start they knew they wanted to build production ml systems the company was valued at about a billion dollars and they were just getting very large very large amounts of money being injected because in ride hailing the numbers are quite astronomical in terms of like the burn and the revenue and so it's like 500 million or a billion at a time every couple of months, like every six months or so. And so we're really scaling out the team and running into a lot of pain points. Like despite having so many people and such a willingness to get into production with these machine learning systems, not being able to get support from product engineering and not being able to get into prod. So they hired me as the lead of this team and then a team underneath me to help the data scientists get into production. So it is a very classic kind of archetypical problem because you had like five data scientists per engineer. And at the time, we thought that we were not doing a very good job not being able to make everyone happy with getting them into prod. But every time we realized that this is a very common problem because uh, management thinks you just throw data scientists, just hire more data scientists and things will just fix themselves. But it never happened. So originally we were just building the core ML systems like pricing systems, matchmaking, and like you know ranking drivers to to match to customers, fraud detection systems. So we also had a lot of recommendation systems because we had a food delivery network. So we had ride-hailing, food delivery, digital payments, bank, like lifestyle services, all kinds of things. It's like you know if you merge a food delivery company with like a digital payments company and, uh, and a right-handing company.
1: So, the company spans all these different verticals. Are, are, yeah. Is your team kind of catering to all of them as well?
0: Yeah, so the team catered to all the verticals. At the start, though, we didn't specifically focus on digital payments because of regulatory risks. Okay. So it's just right. a lot more complicated because the data was segregated and it was just a lot of red tape. So we ignored that for the first two years, basically. But we did do fraud detection. So there was a lot of like transactional data. It's just not the banking side. But yeah, we had all kinds of use cases. So we even had like credit scoring, sorry, fraud detection, OCR, and like ranking, forecasting, anomaly detection. You name it, we had it. But in most cases, we'd start with like a kind of a bespoke system, and we didn't have like infrastructure for this. But over time, we realized that the only way that a small team like ours, at that time, we were about 15 people at the peak and about 60, 70 data scientists, only way that our team could support them was through building a platform and, and building the tools that these data scientists could be self-empowered. And the first system we built was the feature store. And we built that because most of our time was being spent on both feature engineering as well as productionizing those features. We looked at Uber's implementation and you know, the work that my current employers or the people I work with, Mike and Kevin, did in Michelangelo. And their system was completely end-to-end. At Gojek at the time, though, what we had was pretty advanced, uh, pretty robust computational platform. So we could transform batch data, we could transform streaming data, but we didn't have a way to get that into prod. And so Feast took on a shape that fit the kind of Gojek mold to some degree or the architecture. And so it's essentially the bridge between these transformation systems and the production environment. And it allows data scientists to define schemas that point to sources it's kind of like a you know, virtual feature store in a sense, and it maps into those sources and then allows them to ingest the data and then kind of expose that in both in a developer environment as well as a production environment. And so we built the project with Google Cloud. So they were a kind of strategic investor with us, and we work with their professional services arm and over like a three-month period, we built the software, we shipped it, we got a few use cases onboarded, and we we're also very close to the Kubeflow team at that point, and they really encouraged us strongly to open-source it and work out in the open. And so we did that. We open-sourced it like way too soon. It was huh. pretty raw, and you know, a lot of people were like, wait, this, this is just like undocumented ball of spaghetti. It's not even a real open-source project. But so we continued to develop out in the open, and over time, we got more and more traction. We had a few blog posts, one on the Google Cloud blog, and... People, I think, were less focused on MLOps at that point in time. MLOps was not a day-to-day term. But over time, feature stores became a household name and Feast became something that's a little bit more well-known so I'll i just you know finish up the Gojek story and you know we built a bunch of other tools there as well, like a model serving stack, data orchestration tooling, data pipelining tooling. We've got a great experimentation platform as well. And a bunch of the stuff is really open source. Turing is the experimentation system and Merlin is our model serving system. And so after about four years of that, you know, we really rolled out feast quite widely within the organization. People are pretty happy with that. You know, all these teams in the feature source space talk to each other and Tecton and Mike and Kevin reached out to me and we were just kind of riffing on ideas. We decided that what we're trying to do is the same thing. We're, they're trying to build the best enterprise feature store. We're trying to build the best open source community and open source feature store. So we're very aligned what we're trying to do. It's just like we're focusing on different areas. And so we decided to work together. Of course, I don't represent the whole feast. It's a community project, essentially. But I joined Tecton about a year and a four months ago. And um, since then, in Tecton, believes that it needs to invest in feast as like one area for various reasons, but you know, one is to reach this ideal end state of what a feature store is. Working with an open source community really guides you in a lot of ways. They give you good good feedback. It's a large market and you know obviously there's ability to, for people to cross pollinate between the projects. And so Tekton invests heavily into Feast. I think we've got a dedicated team on Feast. And so that's been my focus and you know over the last year and a half. We've shipped a lot of releases. I think we've shipped 0.18 right now. So that's at more than 10 releases since I've left Gojek. And the Feast is now a part of the Linux Foundation for AI. It's one of the first couple that, that joined. And now we've got a bunch that have joined, like Lyft has uh, contributed Flight as well. And there's a bunch of other ones that have joined since then. So it's neutrally governed. We've got a bunch of users right now, like Shopify and Twitter, Robinhood, Salesforce, all using Feast. There's a bunch of others that our household names but they don't want to be named for certain reasons but we've got about three ish people in our slack and you can see the industry's growing like ml ops growing and the data ops and like a whole ML space but also the community around Fuse is growing so that's kind of a snapshot of where we are today
1: so what does it mean to open source something too early? You mentioned it was kind of a spaghetti bowl of, of <laughs> code. Well, uh, you know, th- there's a school of thought that says, like, you, you can never ship too early. You know, early is better. And But maybe there's a, a cost to, like, the confusion that, that comes around from an early launch.
0: Yeah, I think it depends on who your customer is. At that point, you know, some people will only will have one first impression and they will never come back to your project. Yeah, no no, totally. Right? And so some of those people are just, like, lost forever. And it doesn't even mean that your code is bad. It's just like they don't understand what the purpose is. Even today with proper documentation, a lot of people don't understand why feature stores need to be there, right? What problem it solves. And so I think that's more the problem that I would have solved. But I also like the idea of like shipping early, getting people to contribute. And it's not clear that we made a mistake. I think it could have been that we we did the right thing.
1: Yeah. And then um, maybe another kind of interesting part of your story I think a lot of people would love to collaborate with Google on an open source project. They're at a random company and building something interesting. How fun that you got to do this with Google Cloud when you were at Gojek. I imagine that's in part just because of this strong relationship you had with Google Cloud at the time.
0: Yeah, Gojek at the time was, I think, the second largest customer of Google Cloud in Asia. I think just behind like Tokopedia or something. They were very incentivized to kind of work with us, and right. you know we also wanted to work with them because they had really good engineers, and they had good visibility in how other companies were also doing things, and they could connect us to teams like Spotify, or I can't even remember all the companies that they connected us to. So it was great in knowing what not to build and what to build, and being on the cutting edge instead of you know building something that's like three years dated or... But yeah, we worked with that team, really strong folks. And some of those folks went on to work on Vertex at uh, Google Cloud. And even at Robinhood, some of the engineers that worked on Vertex are now working on Feast at Robinhood on feature stores. So it's a small space, and um, it's interesting how the same engineers and people are working on the same things.
1: (laughs) It is. is, Nothing's new. We all are just stealing each other's ideas, I suppose. (laughs) So great. Uh, And then the other interesting element was... Google kind of encouraged you, nudged you maybe to open source a little bit, or at least the Kubeflow team. I suppose they already had this open source project, and they thought it might pair well.
0: Yeah, I think at the time, Kubeflow was composed of components. It's still today, but there was also an awareness that they were relatively weak on the data side. Like, Feast really plugged a big hole for them. And so it was an important thing for Feast to be interoperable with the ML platform that they were building. Yeah. So they had, like, model surveying and, you know, hyperparameter tuning and experimentation and notebooks. But then, you know, what is your production story for, like, getting data? And now the user basically has to run their own Spark jobs and deploy their own online stores and all those things. So that's where we came in. And I think that's why they wanted to kind of collaborate with us and work with us.
1: I guess I don't know Gojek for having kind of a a pattern or history of developing open source, but it sounds like Merlin and the the other projects, maybe there is more of a a pattern than i realized
0: yeah the company has shipped quite a few i think the leadership there was really very open around open source Great. um they were a bunch of ex-thought workers so rj gore who was the cto at the time he basically just said don't even ask me about open source just open source it so there was like a blanket statement that you could just ship code out into the open and do your best not to ship like something Secret or something that's of strategic importance, but it's actually it's it's much more rare to find that in in just code that an everyday developer writes, right? Unless you're shipping like models or business logic that's like your your feature engineering pipelines or something crazy that clearly is like IP.
1: That's a great point. I, I think most organizations are trapped in this world of let's assume everything we write is exactly. top secret and then and give permission on occasion for open source, and they're like, no, let's just assume everything's kind of vanilla code because it is. And be sensitive to maybe a situation's edge cases where it's probably... Also,
0: yeah. our biggest problem at Gojek was, you know, we had all this money, but we couldn't hire people. And so if you just ah. open source a lot, then really helps with hiring. It's a lot better story than hand-wringing about like, oh, is this line of code going to cost us something?
1: Yeah, yeah. Great. So you open source this, people start responding. 3,000 people in Slack is impressive. How do you kind of get the word? I mean, I guess kubeflow maybe helps you a bit i don't know if how much of that happened before after your involvement with tekton but are you surprised by all the kind of interests and where do you feel like it came from
0: well it's it's multiple things so firstly we had a couple of hundred already in the kubeflow just feast room like slack so there was growth but i think the ml ops space has had an incredible growth in the last year or two and if you look at like ml ops community that demetrios is running i'm not sure if you're familiar with that It has also, I don't know, like 8,000 or 9,000 or massive growth. Of course, that's a lot more engaging and it's a lot more different kind of areas that people are interested in there. But it's not really surprising that we're at 3,000. But there is also another factor that we have the Apply conference and that runs every, you know, it's two or three times that we've hosted it already. And that brings more people in. So that brings people in that are not specifically just looking for feature stores, but they're in the kind of broader community so not all 3,000 are like on an active on a daily basis, but we have a very very healthy core group, and that number is always going up. Awesome.
1: Was the apply conference something you did after joining Tecton, or was that before?
0: That was after. Yeah. So so that's not something that I drove. It's more from the Tekton side. But you know, we got in a bunch of great speakers like Wes McKinney and you know a bunch of others from like companies that have applied machine learning at scale, solve real problems. We try and make it not like vendor specific. But it's always very hard because vendors want to talk and engineers typically don't want to talk. Yeah. So yeah, we try and make it interesting and more applied and something that's a little bit more appealing to the average dead engineer or machine learning practitioner. And it's gone well so far. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a tough line to draw. And I feel like maybe the best way sometimes is just to do a little bit of everything, have some kind of vendor agnostic content and then allow the vendors to do a little bit and try and make everybody a little bit happy. But let's talk a little bit now that we kind of understand the story of feasts. maybe some of the broader topics around the market here. Maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like joining Tekton. I think we hear a lot about open source projects that create companies from themselves. I don't know, like a a Mongo type situation. But this, this was a little bit unique, right, Willem? What's it been like, I guess, kind of bringing an open-source project to an existing company.
0: Yeah, actually, I think that is very unique. I can't think of a company that has done that before. No, yeah. (laughs) I think it's for multiple reasons. There's definitely some traction on the Feast side when we had this discussion, and there's like an agreement that we'd want to kind of bold on that. And I think both Tecton and Feast benefits from that. Of course, if Feast gets an investment of engineering resources benefits, Tecton is also ahead of Feast in terms of functionality. And so a lot of those ideas we can just copy verbatim and roll out to open source because you know Tecton will always have a head start because the bulk of our engineering workforce is on Tecton. But another thing is that the Tecton product is kind of based on the work that Mike and Kevin and the team did at Uber. And so is Feast. And so our products are not wildly different. They're pretty close. And in fact, we always had this idea in the back of our minds that These products will converge, and we can make it easy for people to move from the one to the other. So, if you want something open source, or you just want to kick the tires, or you want to run it on your own, you can use Feast, and it'll solve your problems. But you're going to have to, you know, roll up your sleeves a little bit. If you want to just use a managed service, and you know you've got bigger problems to solve than deal with the feature store, then you can use Tekton. And so, the long-term goal was always allow people to move between the one and the other. And we also knew that. Because the space is growing, there's a little bit of a distrust of vendors. And that changes over time as the market matures. But at the start, people want to deploy something on their own. They want to get a win. They want to prove to the business that Feature Store makes sense and that there's value here. And then they want to pay for something. And so it's a good story for Tekton and it's good for Feast. Of course, it is a very unique situation. It doesn't always happen. Normally, the company starts something on their own and going kind of promotes that. But so it has been a joy kind of doing this from both gojek and then tekton of course the conversations are completely different now at gojek it was here's this kind of captive audience of data scientists that you can kind of dog food this software until it works eventually right but you know out in the wild the product needs to be at a, a higher level of maturity so luckily we could do that at gojek because now you're dealing with companies that are deciding do i build or buy and by build i kind of mean adopts of open source and kind of build on that but if you want to use an open-source product, you, you probably want to show them something that is a little bit more mature because there don't have many options today. But so, yeah, that's been very refreshing. Yeah.
1: And then you mentioned earlier that your project, Feast, kind of fits between processing engines and storage, if I understood. You talked about bridging the gap. The assumption is people bring their own processing pipelines and bring their own storage. Is that correct? And, and I imagine an alternative would be like an all-in-one type solution.
0: Yeah, maybe I can talk about what Tecton does and then I can talk about what Feast does. So Tecton, you bring a data source, you bring either a batch source like a Redshift or like a Parquet file on Data Lake or you bring a stream and then you define transformations on those sources and then those transformations will be run as like either streaming or batch jobs on a schedule or constantly. And then both an online and offline store will be populated from those computations. And those two stores will then be used for building training data sets or being served online in a production environment. Now, Feast is slightly different. Feast was built on the kind of Gojic architecture where the compute systems were upstream. And so we're more focused on once you have your streaming or your batch features already computed, we can make that available for you in production. Now, for a lot of people, they think, well, the the feature engineering is the the difficult part, and we agree with that. I think the risk for us was we didn't want to reinvent like a data pipelining or a computational system. So we really wanted to focus on the area that we thought that was unaddressed instead of the area that was the most challenging. And so plugging Feast into an Airflow pipeline or a DBT pipeline is very easy, and it solves that last mile but it doesn't do the computation. So you need to do that upstream. What we do do today is we do have some level of computation. So you have row-level real-time computation called on-demand features. So when you read from a online store, for example, you can transform data at a row level and you can apply those both at the online, sorry, it's both online and offline in a consistent manner. And this is very important when you have event data, let's say like a customer's location that isn't available to pre-compute for that customer. So you can't use that data to, like figure out the distance between the customer and the driver or between the customer and you know where the product is going to be available, like the closest store or something. But over time, we're going to be implementing a lot of the same functionality that Tekton has. So even right now, we're planning to build batch feature engineering support and streaming compute support. And yeah, we're chatting with a bunch of folks that are, you know, there are RFCs, and that's something we do in the Feast Project. We create RFCs or design documents, essentially, that... lots of people collaborate on they voice what they want um, the requirements and then we go and actually implement that so definitely streaming compute and batch compute will become a part of feast because ultimately our core user is an engineer like somebody that needs to support data scientists and we want to make them uh, you know give them higher leverage and so if they have to manage streaming jobs we want to take that burden off their plate but i think the risk for us is we don't want to add a new system for them to manage when they already have a system. So we would prefer to integrate than reinvent that.
1: Yeah, makes total sense. And when you say row level, is that kind of like a non-aggregation?
0: Yeah, that's non-aggregation. You'd not want to aggregate at that level because normally if you're doing an entity lookup, like for this user, give me his or her features, you can't aggregate there. I mean, you, you could, but then you'd need to apply that aggregation on the batch side as well.
1: Yeah, aggregating streams has always been kind of a little complicated. You have to think about Windows and when do the Windows end. and
0: Yeah, I think a part of why it falls apart for the retrieval case, I think you're talking about the production, like how do you produce features to store in the online store? But at the retrieval time, the list of entities that you look up is kind of random, right? Let's say you're like looking for a driver with Uber. Which drivers are going to be queried is depending on like which ones are close to you, right? So that list is always random. So if you aggregate over that list, when you look up their features how does that translate to the batch case, like the offline feature computation? It can't, right? And because those are just like query time lists that are completely impossible to know for trainings. So basically it's always point lookups. It's always row level, yeah.
1: Great, and then maybe we talked a bit before the show about use cases that are good for feature stores, bad for feature stores. Where do you find people reaching for fees versus other things?
0: Yeah, I think um, for like traditional supervised learning, anything basically that... You, know, you just want to make a prediction like an XGBoost or a scikit-learn, anything where ML is involved. So fraud detection comes to mind, churn prediction, pretty much anything where you, know, you can run a model and it needs data and you want to make a prediction. That's where feature storage is valuable. What we do see is that typically it's not valuable when you have batch-only use cases because you, you don't have this consistency problem, right? You don't have two environments, the offline online environment, typically you just have like your one single data source. Feature stores are typically more valuable when you have a freshness requirement. Either you have streams pushing low latency data into an online store, or you have these like real-time computations, or you have fast, like low latency reads. And if you have those elements and you need to do some kind of online scoring, then a feature store is going to be critical for you. Feature stores are useful as part of recommendation systems although they don't do everything in a recommendation system so it's very good at like ranking you can use a candidate server look up a bunch of like entities like a bunch of users and then rank them and the feature store can be the source of the features for those users or those entities so that fits really well into the rex's case there as well yeah and i think that's pretty much it where where feature stores are not really good good at today is mostly computer vision and i'd say nlp partly because the data models don't really lend themselves to reuse and discovery. Over time, I guess you could have feature stores moving more into that space, but most people in those spaces, I think they work more at the data set level, where feature stores are really good at the, hey, here's this feature that's being computed as a time series over time. You know, like, well, what's this driver's rating or what's this driver's top three locations in this area or in the city or, you know, it's just it's some time series value that's constantly changing as opposed to here's this big image or here's this like video and the features are kind of hard to discretize from that. You
1: bring up a point that I've heard elsewhere that you mentioned MLOps is a big market trend happening and some have said that maybe MLOps is not one pipeline it's really kind of several pipelines one being computer vision one being nlp and one being kind of more tabular yeah. numerical data and what you say kind of resonates with that theory that you probably want to feature store in in the right column but you may not need it in the others as much
0: yeah i think that's a good question i really think it depends on you know going back to your first principles do you need to be online and is there like a latency or freshness requirement I'd argue in a lot of cases, the computer vision doesn't really need that. Often you're okay with like a one second delay or like, you know, predictions. So yeah, I'm not sure if a feature is absolute, because if you can if you can wait a second, you can probably run like a micro batch, right? You can read it right. from the offline store, do your prediction and send the result back. And that simplifies your architecture dramatically. I, I hope I'm not promoting some theory that I'm not aware of, but yeah. No, 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 I think, no, no, I, I, think I agree. Yeah,
1: yeah, that... Um... <laughs> You're right. You're you're looking for almost user response, things that the user are waiting for. If the users are waiting for answers, you kind of need a feature store. And then maybe tell us what do we have to look forward to on the Feast project going forward?
0: Yeah, so I think there's two areas that we are heavily investing right now. And the one is like high performance reads and writes through our feature server. So right now we're focusing on supporting extremely high loads in our read API for reading feature values in an online production setting. Over the last couple of months, we've been doing a lot of benchmarks, a lot of optimizations, and we'll be continuing with that. And in mid-March to end of March, we're going to be releasing our Go feature server, which you know, has a lot of great functionality and um, is really, really about robust. And it actually comes you know, ships with a lot of the you know, learnings we've had on the Tekton side. So there's a lot of really battle-tested code on the technical side and a lot of learning is that we're open sourcing there the other thing is data quality monitoring almost universally when we speak to data scientists when we say you know what's the number one thing that a feature store can add it's can we have better data quality monitoring so we're working on integrating great expectations actually we've got a proof of concept of that already out so if you look at the latest feast fee 0.18 we already support integration with great expectations and so you know, you can already, like when you build a training data set, to select that as a, as a reference data set and then use that to validate future training runs. And so the feature store can integrate with those tools and ensure that your data gets profiled and then you've got these rules that can be used to prevent drifting your data. And those rules we're going to continue to apply in different places. So we're going to allow you to you know, ship rules from the offline setting. Like imagine a data scientist both creates features offline Trains a model, but also ships the rules around those features into prod. And so when there's a streaming system creating these features, that's maybe created by a data scientist or created by a different team, those feature values are being computed or will be validated by those rules. And that's extremely powerful because we enable these data scientists more. Yeah, so that's something that a lot of people have been asking for, and it's going to be a big focus for us this year. You know, If you check out 0.18 and 0.19 that will be releasing next month, there's going to be big releases focusing on that.
1: That's great. I feel like um, a feature store was kind of an exciting, new, maybe to some people, kind of ambiguous idea historically. And do you feel like that's kind of, I don't know if you would feel like that, but maybe it's been ironed out more recently. Do, do people kind of understand where the feature store kind of fits in there? well
0: i think there's if you don't have the problems then it's hard for you to understand the role of the feature store yeah. but when you run into yeah. the problem it's like so obvious yeah. um, and so i think the problems are a bit niche because ml is such a big space and if you deal with like batch data you don't get it because until you run with into like operational problems you're not going to understand it so i think you know we can be better about our messaging and positioning or whatever you want to call it but it's still a little bit of a problem in explaining the value of it but we have so many like teams running it and really relying on it that we know that it is an important component.
1: Well, maybe it's a feature, not a bug. I mean, it make, makes for easy qualification. You're Fun like, intended. I don't know why I need you. Well, then you don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Good. Willem, i so grateful to have you come on the show today. Really exciting stuff you're working on. Anything you want to say before you go? Maybe where people can find Feast?
0: You know, we're going to be talking at a lot of conferences this year. Um, we're going to be at Data Council. Hopefully we're going to be at, you know, Data AI Conf. You check out Feast at feast.dev. We've got a great, you know, growing Slack community at slack.feast.dev. Um, so, you know, just pop in and uh, join the community if you're interested in the space.
1: Thanks, Willem.
0: Yeah, my pleasure.
1: find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.